0: Today's reading is Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 to 25. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this?, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this And began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. This is the word of God.
1: Thank you, Kate, and good morning, everyone. My name's Pete Snow. I'm the Assistant Minister here. Good to be with you here on Palm Sunday, looking at this passage in the Gospels. Just before we begin, uh, I, was, I was doing a Christianity Explored course last year, and as we read through Mark's Gospel, there was a, a senior gentleman who got to this passage, and he read it. And he looked up at me and he went, what's Jesus' problem with the fig tree? Do you notice that as Kate read it? This is pretty harsh. Jesus, why do you, you seem to curse a fig tree just because it didn't have your breakfast. Uh, we'll get to that. I hope, I'll try and show you. This is actually an, a beautiful illustration of what's going on in the whole chapter. The king gets to his capital city, inspects it like he does the fig tree, and well, we'll, we'll see what he finds. Let's pray. Amazing grace, Father God, as we come to your word this morning, we're mindful of those words we just sung, amazing grace, it's sweet to our ears, but help us to understand it, I pray, help us to understand your word and get a blessing from it, whether this is the first Easter for us, taking these things seriously, and it's all new to us, or whether it's very familiar, help us to understand, to perceive, and to obey, amen. what sort of help do we need from God? What sort of help do we need from him? We're in the run-up to Easter, and um, we're looking at this passage because it's Palm Sunday. We'll get to the, the cross on Good Friday and the resurrection on Easter Sunday. But what sort of help do we need from the Messiah when he eventually comes? We saw last week there's this beautiful passage about blind Bartimaeus, for whom the pennies seem to sort of drop, and he suddenly sees things clearly, and he follows Jesus to Jerusalem on the way. But once you've twigged, Once the pennies have dropped, what do you want him to do for you? That's what we're looking at today. What sort of Messiah do you want Jesus to be if you believe he is the Messiah? Would you mind just keeping a finger in your Bible at Mark 11? Just turn to the back with me because there's a map I'd love you to just have a look at. It's, It's right in the back cover. It says Jerusalem around 30 AD. Can you see that? So this is a map of Jerusalem, and you see Jesus is coming in from the east. So there's a little road there that says to Bethany. We know in verse 1 of our chapter, he's coming in from Bethany, from that direction. He's traveled about 80 miles from the north. Um, that's, where he sort of, that's where his stomping ground was. But he comes in on the road to Bethany, step by step. There's Gethsemane. We'll get to that later in Mark. And he winds his way up on the path with this big crowd of disciples on Palm Sunday towards Jerusalem. So the king is coming to Jerusalem. And we're supposed to see this as climactic, you know, chapter 11, at last, he's here in his capital city, step by step by step through the gospel, we've been working our way towards Jerusalem, and now here we are, the Passover time, what's he going to find in the heart of it all? I think we're supposed to sort of hold our breath, at last we're here, what's going to happen? The question does rather rebound on us as Jesus begins to turn the tables, literally in this chapter and, and say to us, well, what am I going to find when I come and see you? Okay, there's two things on your um, service sheets if you're following along there. Jesus, son of David, is uh, welcomed as a king into Jerusalem, and he's feared as an inspector in the temple. So hopefully nice and straightforward. First of all, uh, he's welcomed as a king into Jerusalem, verses 1 to 11. Not, in fact, welcomed, as I think that maybe the typo came out on the service sheet uh, Yes, that must have been me mistyping it. It wasn't that he was immaculately coiffured, well welcomed. Um, he's welcomed. Let's have a look at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if we carry on down in verse, verse 9, Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And Jesus entered Jerusalem. Do you know, I've been going to church a few years. I'd always thought that the the crowd were the clever ones on Palm Sunday. Because here they are, you know, ripping branches off the trees, waving them, saying, Hosanna, blessed is the the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the kingdom of our father David. We finally worked out who he is. I think some of them had worked out who he is there. That's why they say what they do. But I think Jesus is the clever one here. You know how every political leader is basically concerned with their PR image, their their public image and what they portray to the world. I was reminded of a couple of incidents recently. I think we've got a couple of photos. Jeremy Corbyn um, seemed to be the impressive political leader here when um, Corbyn joined seatless commuters on floor for a three-hour train journey, and here he is, um, snapped by his own team, uh, sitting in the corner of a train carriage because the, the train was too packed. So he, he empathizes with the common man or woman commuting to work. The trouble was that um, Virgin Trains released CCTV footage of him sitting down in a chair shortly after he'd filmed this little bit of footage, so it didn't seem to be as packed as he'd made out. Not to be outdone, David Cameron... Uh, here he is, um, when he was leader of the opposition himself, um, riding his bike to work. What a, what a worthy way to travel. And yet, it was also discovered that he had a car following him to carry his shoes and his briefcase. This was back in 2006. But you see, what they're trying to do is something very worthy, isn't it? The, the way I travel says something about me as a leader. Uh, these, these guys trying to show themselves to be men of the people, ordinary people who can empathize. Jesus here... I'm not trying to be cynical about Jesus, obviously, but he manages his entry, the way he travels into Jerusalem, in such a magnificent PR exercise, which is all drawn from the Old Testament, and I just want to try and show you what he's doing. Just bear with me, I'm going to to chuck a couple of Old Testament references at you, but it's to show you the wealth of evidence and what he's actually trying to draw together here as he's welcomed into Jerusalem. So here we go. Firstly, he's he's riding a colt. I think we've got this on the screen. Genesis 49 was a famous prophecy about Judah who was going to be the, the, the clan that rules. And uh, here we are, Genesis 49. The scepter will not depart from Judah, one of the tribes of Israel, who Jesus is from, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. Okay, so a very significant moment in the Old Testament. It says there's going to be a ruler from Judah. There's going to be something about a donkey tethered. Oh, well, Jesus spends quite a long time in Matthew 11, obsessed with this donkey that's tethered. Interesting. Zechariah 9, verse 9, another very important one. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, so another very important Old Testament prophecy, which talks about the king and the way he's going to come. It's going to be on a young donkey. Odd, as you read that the first time in the Old Testament, but it makes a bit more sense when you get to Jesus managing his arrival. So firstly, that's the cult, okay? There's also the fact that he's riding and he's not walking. We've got a quote here from Psalm 118. Lord, save us, or Hosanna, literally. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us with boughs in hand, palm branches in hand, Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You recognize the words? The crowd on the first Palm Sunday, they were just doing the same thing they did every year. They were pilgrims going up to Jerusalem for Passover in the springtime. They were used to repeating these words. These psalms got repeated every year. So you see, I don't think the the crowds are necessarily the clever ones. They're just repeating the liturgy, the songs they had been taught. But Jesus uses this, and he's not joining a festal procession on foot. He's marking himself out because he's not walking with them like a regular pilgrim. He's riding on a colt. It says something different. I'm different from the rest of you. I'm riding into Jerusalem. Okay, next thing he's doing is um, he, he lets them spread their cloaks under him. So this is 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. They quickly took their cloaks and they spread them under him on the bare steps. And then they blew the trumpet and shouted, burr, burr, Jehu is king, who was the king at the time, the good king that was appointed. Okay. So we might have been able to guess this one. They, they take off their garments and they spread them under his feet as if to treat him like royalty. Indeed, it's exactly what they'd done in the Old Testament when they appointed kings. And Jesus merrily sits on his donkey, letting them do it. Last thread he's drawing together is the, the kingdom thread. As we saw, the crowd, in, uh, they, they were used to singing Psalm 118, but actually they, they do add something in Mark chapter 11. Do you see in verse verse 10? they add a line to the psalm blessed is the coming kingdom of our father david so it seems like they do know something of the kingship aspect that's going on but jesus do you get this he lets them say it he's not terribly embarrassed by it don't don't say that about the kingdom don't let me ride on a donkey don't spread your cloaks under me or use that language as we ride into roman occupied jerusalem with all the temple and the priests watching very happy to let them do it do you see as he, every step he takes into Jerusalem, he's orchestrated this. He's put this into place. He's told them to go and find a cult that's tethered up. He's letting them do all this stuff. Jesus is the clever one. And as they go, they chant. See verse 9, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted. I believe this is called antiphonal chanting. Some churches, they do this every week when they recite the Psalms. But so uh, one side of the church would do you know, the first line and one side of the church would do the other side. So I thought we could give it a try. You think I'm joking, but I actually want to give it a try. Okay, so this, you see see what's going on here? So verse 9, the ones in front of the procession, um, they went ahead and they shouted probably the first line, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the ones who are down at the back, they respond with verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Okay. Okay. So insofar as we join in the festival procession this morning, let's give this a go. Okay. Um, if you're sitting uh, in the front block, you see you guys, you guys, and these guys here, you're going to say verse 9, okay? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if you're sitting in the back blocks, then you're going to say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father, Father David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Ready? So f- front block. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Oh, a lovely bit of antiphonal chanting. Okay, as we join in the festal procession. On and on it goes, you see, as they go up to Jerusalem. This would have gone on and on and on, like the sort of parades they have at Piccadilly. This is their chant as they go up to the great city. Of course, I think the question that comes back to us. If, you're, if we're willing to say this chant, if we're in the crowd, we think we have a, a, a grain of an idea of who Jesus is, Will you welcome Jesus today? Will you? Not everyone in the city he's approaching, of course, at Easter time would have welcomed him. Some people do. Especially the ones who came from Galilee, the ones who'd been with him in the north, the ones who were sort of the underdogs who were written off and weren't part of the establishment. They particularly welcomed him and they'd come with him all the way some of the ones who were part of the establishment found it harder to welcome Jesus. Will you welcome him today? It's not enough to be around Jesus. It's not enough to be around church, you know? You can't just attend things and assume that's enough. You can't just be in the procession and assume that's enough, waving your palm branch. Judas was in the procession waving the palm branch. So how about you? Have you welcomed him this Easter? Could it be a good opportunity to say, uh, either I never have done it, I've never actually said, Jesus, I'm so glad you came. Or perhaps it's a good chance for us to reset in our Christian lives. I hope God might grant us the grace today as a church and also individually to say, Jesus, I really am glad you came. I welcome you to earth. I welcome you to save me. I'm sure that when, when you're employing somebody, you want to employ someone to a role. You set out the criteria. This is the sort of person we're looking for. Here's the job description. And now we're going to open the applications and we're going to invite people to interview. Sometimes you get a candidate who ticks all the boxes, right? You come to interview. You are exactly the person we're looking for. You know, tick, 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 everything we wanted. You are them. Jesus ticks all the boxes job description that was laid out for him in the old testament and then here he turns up drawing all the threads together carefully managing everything to say i'm here i'm here at last i want to say to you this easter time it really is as good as it sounds you know sometimes we think there's not much to worry about but actually there's everything to worry about and everything to celebrate at easter time because it really is as good as it sounds Sometimes not so much in an employment context, but in a romantic context, you know, you, you meet someone, a friend who's fallen in love, head over heels in love, and they, they've met exactly the person they seem to be looking for all along. You know, they just tick all the boxes. Fantastic. Head over heels. Well, could it possibly be that way for a Christian awaiting their Messiah? He really does tick all the boxes as he arrives in Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, Jerusalem, humble, riding on a donkey. Will you welcome him? Is he good news this Easter time? Jesus was welcomed as a king into Jerusalem. Secondly, he was also uh, feared as an inspector in the temple. Verses 12 to 21. Let's, uh, Let's pick up the story at verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So Jesus was feared as an inspector in the temple. I once went for some job training when I was doing a a job um, in assertiveness. It wasn't to be a church minister. Uh, I was a security guard just for a little while in a past life, and they they gave us training in assertiveness so so that when, you know, if everything kicked off and it was an emergency panic station so we'd know how to assert ourselves. Uh, Anyway, there was this guy who came in specially. He was like a third party, come to do assertiveness training with us. And he told us a story about the most assertive individual he'd ever seen. And he was a professional who got taught. He got paid to do this, teach this to other people. And he told us about a story of a crowd in London um, years and years ago, um, early in his life. Um, And I guess they were on a, a march, a demonstration, and things were threatening to get out of hand. This thing was just boiling over. Angry crowd, police cordon all around trying to control it, but police struggling to keep a handle on it. And the crowd was just boiling over. This thing might just tip over into being a riot. And um, so the trainer tells the story. He said, things changed when I saw the police chief, like uh, the senior man of all the police chief in the Met, come down in full dress uniform. So he spotted what was going on. He'd gone and put on everything. You know, the full suit, the hat, the the police medals, the gold braid. He had everything on, polished um, up and ready. And he saw him, he said, striding towards the crowd, through the police cordon, straight up to the the crowd. And they spot this guy. And he said, I've never seen anyone so assertive in all my life. You there, stop what you're doing. Back against the wall. Do it now. You know? And the guys dressed up to the nines. And apparently they melted away. You know, once they saw the guy and they heard what he was saying, Ooh, okay, we'll stop it. I would love to have been there on Jerusalem to see the king in his city, going into his temple, doing what we've just read. Jesus Christ in the temple courts, asserting himself in the way that only he is allowed to do, because it's his temple, and say, I'm not going to have any more of this. I think to have seen him do that must have been one of the most magnificent sights in all of history. Jesus comes as an inspector, the king inspector, because it's his right to do it. And it's not just a public building. It's not like he goes to Westminster Abbey down the road, which is kind of a landmark for the UK. The temple was more than that. It's not just a public building and a landmark. It was the beating heart of Jewish life. It was everything. It was where God dwelt in the Old Testament. It was their hope so that if the temple's gone, so are they. And Jesus walks in as the assertive inspector into that place. Teachers fear Ofsted. Jesus is like off temp. You know, I've come to inspect your temple. I'm deadly serious about this. There are many schools that could get a good or bad report, but there's only one temple. So you've got to imagine the scene here, right? Look at verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. So it's it's absolutely round in Jerusalem. Because it's Passover time, the whole country was supposed to come up to Jerusalem in these processions, pilgrimages, going into the temple courts. And they all need a sacrifice. So they're all trying to get their hands on some sort of sacrificial animal, probably a lamb, to try and um, have their family offering for Passover. So this temple court, the outer area, known as the court of the Gentiles, is rammed with people. Jesus goes in there, where Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us one year at Passover, one year, 255,000 lambs were bought and sold. 255,000 lambs to be sacrificed at Passover. Jesus goes in there and starts turning over the tables. I'm not having any of this. Get out of here. Go. Go on out of here. It says he, actually, he didn't just turn over the tables and send the money flying and the doves are squawking and the traders are cursing. He actually just banished people from there and he presumably stood at the big gates at the doors and said, no, you're not coming back in. And we're told he basically stayed there all day because when evening comes, he leaves Jerusalem again, verse 11. And as he's standing at the gate, he's driving people out. He's saying, you're not coming back in. But the people obviously are crowding around wondering what's going on. He starts to teach them. So breathless from all his exertion, he starts to teach them the reason for what he's doing. We're told some of his reasons. So verse 17, as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers? What then, this, this then seems to have been the thing that puts mild-mannered Jesus, Jesus the man known for his humility and grace and kindness, into an apoplectic rage. The fact that it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but they've made it into a den of robbers. Now, there could be a number of things going on here. No doubt part of it is the commercialization aspect. You've just commercialized the temple. But then again, they did need to acquire Passover, sacrifice, sacrifice from somewhere. So I don't think that's the main thing. I think the main thing is Jesus's point about it's a house of prayer for all nations. That's the, that's the, the, the exclusive words that Mark adds over all the other gospel writers. It's for all nations. And Mark was a gospel written to Gentile people. Jesus seems to be absolutely mad that this is the court of the Gentiles. And you're not letting them just come to God and pray. You're, you're, you're obfuscating, you're making it complicated with all these things. They can't just come and pray to the Jewish God. That's what makes them fear his, him as the inspector in the temple. I think it's hard not to love this about Jesus, isn't it? I mean, here he's clearing out all the faff and all the middlemen and all the money changes. Get out of here. I want people to be able to come from any nation and come and pray to God without all the faff, without all that stuff, without all the money that you're making change hands. It's hard not to like that about Jesus. He's radical in his day and age. Of course, some people don't like it. I think in an age when Everyone's out for their own country. Everyone's trying to strike a trade deal for their own country. Everyone's full of nationalistic fervor as we try and protect ourselves. Everyone's looking for isolationist policies for them. When Jesus clears out all the money men and says to the foreigner, come on in here and pray directly to my God. That's a very powerful message. Of course, in verse 18, we've got the seed of Good Friday, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him. That's why they feared him, because everyone was amazed at his teaching. Okay, there's just one problem which you might have spotted. Um, If we're saying Jesus clears out all the sacrificial animals, if he clears out all um, all the other stuff, the money changing, then what happens to that Old Testament stuff? The sacrificial system that God deliberately put in place which is a good thing in the Old Testament. What happens to that? Because, of course, it does seem that if Jesus is overturning the tables of the money changers, he's also overturning the uh, the whole sacrificial system. Or, as I put it on your service sheets, what now? Okay, Jesus, you're in an absolute rage about this. You've come into Jerusalem, you've inspected the temple, you found it wanting, but what are you going to do now? What are you going to plant in its place? I think this is where our fig tree comes in. Let me just try and explain this to you because it does seem odd at first. Just see how verses 12 to 21, Mark narrates it as a bit about the fig tree, a bit about the temple, and then back to the fig tree. You you're clear on that? So it's basically a paragraph about the fig tree, paragraph about the temple, fig tree. We saw last week, Mark doesn't waste his words. He doesn't do all these things for nothing. It seems to be an acted illustration, an acted parable of what's going on. Jesus looks at the fig tree, it looks really leafy, looks like it's really busy, lots of stuff going on, but when he gets closer, he has a look, no actual fruit. Jesus looks at the temple, looks really busy, loads of transactions, loads of stuff going on, gets closer, he's mad because there's no actual fruit, no real prayer. Goes back to the fig tree, just to reinforce the lesson, and we see that it's withered, It's a negative miracle Jesus does here. It withers from the root. See what we're supposed to understand? Jesus says, I look at that temple the same way I look at this fig tree. It looks good, but it's not bearing any fruit. So it's going to wither from the root. I think this is a challenge for us. If perhaps in our religious Christian life, there is lots of leafiness, lots of busyness, lots of transactions, lots of hustle and bustle, but ultimately no fruit. I think particularly Jesus has in mind prayer here. Then he 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 pronounces that barren and withered from the root. From now on, in Mark's gospel, the temple is doomed. You know that film Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. There's a there's a, uh, a dim echo of that here. The, the, the temple is doomed, and Jesus is going to be in the temple in chapter 12. And then talk about it in chapter 13. So there's a a park near our house and there's a a stump of a tree there. Like a big stump, not just a a thing. They've cut it down like at head height and um, it's a forked thing, but it obviously got diseased and rotten. And so they had to cut it off. It's withering from the root. I go past it and it's kind of sad and salutary because this beautiful, massive tree has just been cut off. But Sometimes you see out of stumps growing little seedlings, don't you? Out of the the massive dead tree comes something new and living. And here Jesus plants two little seeds in the stump of the temple, which he's cut off. And I want to just try and show you what they are as we close. Firstly, faith. Have a look at verse 22. Verses 22 to 24. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and doesn't doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. So Jesus cuts off the sacrificial system, leaves it as a stump, and then talks about faith in the next sentence. Do you see that? Verse 22. I think this begins to explain why this slightly um, unusual verse just pops up here all of a sudden. You know, It can seem a bit strange, can't it? Whatever you want in prayer, ask for it, and it'll be yours. It's tempting to get carried away and think, terrific, I fancy a holiday in the Maldives. So uh, this seems to be a promise from the Lord Jesus. If I ask for it in prayer, it will be mine. Fantastic. Let's leave all the temple stuff behind, and we'll just concentrate on the Maldives for a little while. If you track through with Jesus... In Mark's gospel it's not very long in chapter 14 verse 36 before you see him kneeling in Gethsemane and praying father um, if your will take this cup from me I don't want to die I don't want to suffer but not my will but yours be done okay so Jesus needs to provide the the control on this when he prays he's willing to pray not my will but yours be done God so he needs to provide the control on our prayer life as well I do pray anything I like but it's not my will, but his be done. Nonetheless, I want want us to get the force of this point about faith, the seed that Jesus is planting about faith here, because it's a point about God. Is your God big enough that you really can ask him anything you want? I remember being really flabbergasted when uh, I spoke to a, a minister in the commission network a couple of years ago and he'd managed to get an assistant minister appointed in his church against all the odds like through the church of england channels with the full blessing of every available bishop and archdeacon and and all, all the stuff like that and it, it was fantastic and it was going to be a big help to this church and i said how did you do that i mean how did you wangle it and manipulate everyone and he said honestly i just prayed and if you if you knew the guy you know he wasn't faking it he's he a man of prayer so he did just pray about it he has a very big God, and God answers prayers in line with his will. If Jesus came to this city, this city, London, if he came to this church, Christ Church, Mayfair, if he came to our houses, would he find uh, faith in God expressed in prayer, the sorts of Prayers that say to God, I know it's very unlikely that my friend will ever be interested in Christianity, but you're a big God. The sort of prayer that says, um, I know it's, it seems very unlikely that this culture in this country will ever change, but you're a big God. Or uh, I know it's very unlikely that this denomination will ever be reformed, but you're a big God. It's not that I'm naive and I'm just saying, "Oh, just, God, just take this mountain and throw it into the sea. It's actually that it's a statement about my faith in God. Okay, so that's the first little seed he just plants in the the tree stump of the sacrificial system. The second one is um, forgiveness. Just look at verse 25 with me. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So if you forgive, if you've been forgiven, then forgive others. This is a this is a complicated thing, forgiveness, and I'm loath to bring it up right at the end of a sermon. But Jesus does, so I'm determined to mention it. Jesus says, the measure of whether you've understood being forgiven by God is that you're able to forgive other people. I think of it a bit like this: Um, if you have a a, a duck that quacks quack quack, then um, the quacking doesn't make it a duck, but it does it's an indicator that it is in fact a duck. If you have a Christian who's able to forgive people um, deeply. It's not the the forgiveness; isn't the thing that makes them a Christian, but it is a sign that they've really understood. They really get that. I don't want to make light of the the, the sorts of wrongs human beings are capable of, uh, but this is a challenge from Jesus. He's just planting a seed, saying that the new order that I'm establishing is going to be about faith and forgiveness. This is going to run deep. Of course. There's one more seed, which we'll get to next week, which is uh, not faith, not forgiveness, but Friday. Friday. On Good Friday, we will see the dead stump of human religion as the religious leaders succeed in killing Jesus Christ. We'll see what religion is like without God. That's when they kill the author of life. On Good Friday, we'll see the fragility of a little seedling just appearing but feeling like it's going to be trampled on and destroyed when the Messiah comes to his city. And on Good Friday, we'll see just the possibility that faith in this king could grow into something bigger and more beautiful and more of a blessing to the whole world than the court of the Gentiles in the Jerusalem temple ever was. Well, we've got to wait till Friday. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Messiah, we we welcome you today. We want to lift our hearts to you and say we're glad you came. Thank you for coming to earth. Thank you for coming to Jerusalem. Thank you for coming to your temple, for overturning the sacrificial system, for putting in place faith in God and forgiveness through you and Good Friday, the forgiveness of our sins. Amen.